Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like strudels, polystyrene and comedy. And all those things. Or heroism, courage, honour, nobility, self-sacrifice, valour, respect, community, humanity, innocence, freedom, liberty... There's a slight change to our normal, the normal daybell patter here, and the exact opposite: horror, disbelief, terror, fear, heartbreak, bullying, which we've done in the past, immorality, and crime. We will, of course, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew that the history of bullies? Is in fact all about the Nazi brown shirts and the rise of Hitler, and that was one of our special homeschooling episodes. Or that the history of sharing, sharing, is in fact all about Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto. Mm, they were good ones. You're probably wondering who my fellow presenter is. Let me introduce you. I will say that if history were a country beset on all sides by enemy forces seeking to ridicule the past and declare it insignificant, not a real place, somewhere without a place in our modern world, he would be that brave president of the past, standing by for the people in his historic country, standing up for the past in its role in the present. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping me co-pilot this very episode to be honest sam i didn't have the heart to write any funny punning intro to this episode but i salute you as a historical brother in arms sam willis you are the famous historical adventurer so where are we going today Hello, everyone. We are doing bravery because of all of the horrible things that are happening in the news. James, you got in touch and you said, Sam, let's do bravery. I know. I, I kind of felt that we really needed to do this in solidarity with what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. And one of the things that absolutely strikes struck me over the last four days since Thursday... Uh, and we are we are Monday the twenty eighth of February two thousand and twenty two and history really seems to be being being made. But one of the things that just struck me is the just the incredible bravery that you are seeing left, right, and centre in Ukraine. You know whether it be an elderly woman who challenged Russian troops, saying that they should put sunflower seeds in their pockets. Uh, referring to the fact that when they died, sunflowers would grow up, or the soldiers on the on Snake Island in the Black Sea 
who basically told a Russian warship to go to hell, whether it be people taking up arms, whether it be the amazing leadership of Zelensky, women making Molotov cocktails, the man who knelt down in front of a tank, the woman who's running a crisis charity in Kiev and has refused to go, uh, a woman in Kiev also who decided that she was going to stay put where she was so that she could fight fake news on the internet, whether it be the countless families that are driving towards the border, dropping off the women and children and the husbands returning to fight. Um, I mean, bravery is being seen left, right and centre here. And one of the touching things, I think, one of the most touching things that I heard about was a was a demonstration. I mean, there are countless, but one of it was was a demonstration in in London outside of Number 10 Downing Street and a small boy holding up the poster that said, Putin is trying to kill my gran, you know. And so there is there is bravery absolutely left, right and centre here. So I think we're going to talk about bravery, Sam. Where are you going to take are, us with bravery? Well, I, it's interesting. All of the examples you've said there are... Um, it, I know it's quite interesting because what's happening is it's happening in, in real time. So we, we haven't had the time to kind of filter through the examples and to work out what the kind of... the. The, the you know the real story which will which will survive the years will be it's history you know being made rather than history that already has been made and that's quite interesting so what we're getting is a, is a is a huge jumble of little examples of uh, fascinating bravery in the face of um, extreme difficulty and i i really like that idea of there being small examples um you know the, the guy trying to stop a tank with his body. That that that's an interesting one because it was immediately reminiscent of Tiananmen Square in Beijing. You know, in the late eighties in nineteen eighty nine. But what I think is 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 worth thinking about here is um, the the moment. It's the story of the event is perhaps more important than the event itself, and I think that's going to change as we start to understand the significance of events as they are unfolding. Um, but obviously these, these wonderful multiple, multiple examples of uh, the press highlighting small events makes it a particularly vivid and fascinating and significant, um, uh, well, sort of significant for people and, and um, the way they are experiencing the war. And I wanted to highlight the fact that this interest in passing moments of bravery is not in any way new. Um, I found a wonderful account in the Irish Penny Journal. This is from 1840. Um, it's one of the, the larger of, of several penny magazines of the 19th century in Ireland. It was very populous in its, in its approach, so trying to reach as many people as possible. It covered a huge range of material, including historical anecdotes, short stories, poems, proverbs, all sorts of things. Particularly interesting for Irish folklore. Um, so this is 1840, but it had found an example of Irish bravery from the Seven Years' War, from 1760, so 80 years before. And they believed it was worth sharing for the audience in 1840. So the Seven Years' War is interesting, um, a major global conflict, some say the first really global conflict 
um, primarily between uh, Britain and France, but a lot of Irish people involved. Um, but I just love this idea of um, a small passing example of bravery which was nonetheless considered to be entertaining or or fascinating enough to feature in this journal even though it didn't have a major significance to the war. The following instance of Irish bravery recorded in Faulkner's journal March 18th 1760 is too remarkable to be buried in oblivion. On Saturday last arrived at Yawl the ship good intent belonging to Waterford but last from Bill Bower. She was taken the Tuesday before by a French privateer off Ushant and had on board ten or twelve hands her lading brandy and iron. The French took away the master and all the men except five and a boy. On Friday last, four of them, the fifth not consenting, formed a plan to surprise the nine Frenchmen who were navigating the vessel to France and succeeded therein. Four of the Frenchmen were under deck, three aloft, one at the helm and the other man near him. Three of the Irishmen were under deck, one at the helm and the fifth hiding. One Brian, by surprise, tripped up the heels of the Frenchman at the helm, seized his pistol and discharged it at the other, at the same instant making a signal for his three comrades below to follow his example. They assailed the Frenchman, and by getting at their broadswords soon compelled them to be quiet, and immediately getting above shut the hatches. After a desperate cut which one of the Frenchmen's received on the arm in defending his head, and another a bruise by throwing the pistol at his head after it was discharged, for he missed him, those above likewise called out for quarter, and yielded up the quarter-deck to the intrepid Mr. Bryan. Not one of these fellows could read or write, of consequence they knew not how to navigate the ship. But Brian said that as he knew his course was north in general, being near Ushant, he steered at a venture, and the first land he made was near Yule, where he happily arrived and landed his prisoners who are now in Yule jail. So a lovely little example, James. Um, looking back at the past, one of these kind of snippets of um, kind of a flash of bravery from a previous war. Well, I was looking at, at similar kinds of things as well, ex- examples of of bravery against all odds and people putting themselves in danger and standing up for what is right. And I found countless examples. Uh, And I just want to share a couple of these with you. Do you remember the Fukushima uh, nuclear disaster in 2011? And this is something I I mean, I knew about that, this sort of nuclear accident at a nuclear power plant uh, in Japan. Um, And then there was earthquake, tsunami that sort of... that led to that um you know great um tragedy uh, did you know that in the aftermath of that um there were basically individuals young individuals engineers had to go in and basically clean it all up and and contain it and and so you know there lots and lots of work and actually that is work that irrespective of what safety equipment you have on you safety gear actually it would shorten your life and is really, you know, damaging to you. Have you heard about the elderly Fukushima volunteers who basically um, volunteered to go instead of these young men? So this was all the work of somebody called Yasaturu Yamada, who was a 72-year-old engineer. Uh, He'd survived cancer and he watched these... You know, young men going along and, you know, doing this important but very dangerous work. And he volunteered himself because he felt 
that he was of an age where if he went along, um, say, for example, he you know, was affected by the radiation, it would probably take, you know, 10, 20 years off his life, you know, but, you know, it would it would be quite some time before the cancer actually took place and the radiation damage sort of helped him. Whereas if it took t years off much younger people, they would die proportionally earlier. So what he did was he started a group called a Skills Veteran Corps and he had 400 volunteers of a similar age to him who were veterans, who were experienced engineers, who could go in and sacrifice themselves in place of these these young men. And this seems to me an absolute act of bravery. Another example, uh, and this one is from the, the period before, just before the um, Second World War. So this is, a, this is around the Rape of Nanking, uh, which is part of the, happened during the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1937. And this was when the Japanese army um, basically slaughtered Chinese citizens and it's remembered as the the rape of of Nanking and one particular individual a man called John Rabe uh, who was a, a German citizen um, stayed behind he was a German businessman um, he stayed behind when a lot of other Westerners uh, fled a lot of uh, Western missionaries fled and what he did was he stayed behind and organized something called the Nanking Safety Zone which basically offered shelter and protection for refugees and what he did was he opened up foreign embassies his own buildings the university and he made this a safe zone that people were able to come to and be looked after. And it's estimated that he saved the lives of between 200,000 and quarter of a million Chinese refugees at this point. And he was able to do this because he was a member of the Nazi Party. And this was when the Nazi Party was sort of, you know, very much on the rise and links with, with Japan enabled him to operate in this way. So there we are, Sam, just a couple of examples of utter bravery. Fascinating stuff. I'm interested in the way that um, stories of bravery might get lost in the past. I'm, I'm interested in this because I've been asked to do something for St Paul's Cathedral. Um, and they're doing a project to um, ask uh, a variety of um, personalities to engage whatever they want with a variety of monuments in St Paul's Cathedral in London. And I've been asked to do the big one. Um, of course, it's the tomb of Horatio Nelson. And I've been thinking about how to do this. And I was struck at how easy it has been for historians uh, in recent years to debunk stories which were kind of celebrated by Victorian biographers and also previously and say, oh, no, this couldn't possibly have happened. It doesn't deserve to be in the history books. Um, this has made me quite cross, James. And there's a particularly good example with Nelson. Um, and it's, it's so here's, here's a man who was very, very frail. Um, he was his, when he was born, his mum didn't even expect him to survive. Um, and he went on to be one of the most uh, courageous and and well remembered for his bravery uh, um, military figure in British history. Now, there's a really interesting story that early on in his life he survived an attack by a walrus. 
There's also another one about him being surviving an attack by a polar bear. I think these stories are both fantastic. They were loved, they were celebrated by Victorian biographers of Nelson. But more recent biographers have looked into this and they said, oh, it's unlikely Nelson would have been in charge of the little rowing boat that was attacked by the walrus and blah, blah, blah. And give so many um, possible explanations as to why it might not have happened. Even though, of course, there is no proof it happened, but there's no proof it didn't happen either. All we know is that the story has survived for centuries. Um, And I'm firmly in favour of saying, well, we should give him the benefit of the doubt. Because it's quite interesting thinking about Nelson, because he had a very strange relationship with the truth. He was very happy indeed to share a story uh, for you know political reasons or for uh, reasons that would help to boost his ego. And if he was alive, I'm entirely convinced he would have loved the story of him by hand fighting off a terrible walrus in the Arctic, and he would have done his best to spread the story. Um, and so uh, I've been um, writing this piece uh, about uh, about Nelson to help people understand the man and I've called it I survived the walrus so I've, I've invented something called rebunking James which is where you take some historian who's debunked something and then you you rebunk it you put it back and say come on there's no evidence that this didn't happen let's celebrate the story of bravery it's a really important one it's it's kind of it also misses the point slightly but whether or not it happened doesn't necessarily matter it's a really good inspirational story a fantastic way of getting people interested in the past and interested in the character of someone so it made me think about that and I was a bit worried that um, you know looking at the press now there's so much interest on the truth of what we're seeing whether something has happened whether it hasn't happened Um, and I do really really love these stories that are coming out and they're interesting in their own right regardless of whether or not it happened so that lady with the sunflower seeds handing them to the Russians it's such a brilliant story Um, I hope it happened Um, I'm worried it didn't happen and it's 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 one that's come through through the press uh, just because it is such a good story. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't believe it and we shouldn't do our best to share. I love that idea about rebunking. I wonder what, what other thing I wonder what other things we could rebunk. Well, the, my point is is that historians have been for so long really negative. So you've got all these brilliant mm. stories about the past from Victorians, and then like all like generation which I was brought up in of saying, "Oh, you write this book, and then you say that didn't happen, that didn't happen, that didn't happen," and you take away the magic, the inspirational side of things, the real beauty of history, and it kind of it does miss the point that you know you know, what do we know? Uh, Which is fundamentally important to history. And if you embrace these fantastical stories, then you also encourage people to talk about the fact that um, a lot of what we know about the past is pretty flaky anyway. Yeah. I think that sounds like a brilliant uh, idea for a a podcast or something, Sam. Rebunking history. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Bringing the stories back. The stories back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's sort of, um, sort of in in a tangential sort of unexpected way links to what I was going to talk about. And one of the things that I was, I mean, only in a sort of very loose way, but sort of how the past has been reinterpreted and interpreted in different ways. And I spent some of this weekend dipping into Anne Applebaum's book, Stalin's War on the Ukraine, which is called Red Famine. I don't know whether you've read it, but it's a really interesting book and a really timely read, actually, Because what it deals with, largely, is the way in which 
the historiography, so the what the what the interpretation of history of the USSR has changed over time. And she's written sort of countless books on the gulags, on the Iron Curtain. Um, but this book basically looks at the, the Red Famine. So it's basically that period in the Soviet Union between 1931 and 1934 when basically there were all sorts of agricultural reforms brought about and at least five million people died as a result of them from starvation. And this includes 3.9 million Ukrainians. And all of this gets caught up in um, how... A lot of it gets caught up in how Putin is um, packaging and interpreting uh, the Russian past, and particularly uh, the area of of Ukraine. Um, And also how... Uh, official Soviet or Russian interpretations of the past have shifted over time. So, for example, uh, Joseph Stalin, a man that in the West we know as somebody, you know, connected to the gulags, the Red Terror, you know, sort of, you know, a, a really ruthless dictator. He officially is one of the... It has been voted in recent years as one of the most significant and popular of... Russian political leaders, you know, closely followed by Putin himself. So there's been the, this big sort of whitewashing of 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 what actually happened during um, his power of reign. And this book by Applebaum basically looks at what happened in the Ukraine during this period. And she argues that basically this was all part and parcel of a systematic assault on Ukraine and not only sort of in terms of um, in terms of policies on the ground in terms of agriculture but also on the very idea of Ukraine so they were out alongside persecuting officials and intellectuals who were connected to Ukrainian nationalism this was also an attempt to exterminate you know this this sort of part uh, of the country um, as an independent area, and what you see during this this period is uh, is collectivization of farmland. So rather like what we t- spoke about in a podcast a while ago about what was happening uh, under Mao in China, um, collectivization of farmlands, people doing away with private property, everyone, you know, people not keeping uh, agricultural produce themselves but putting it into um into sort of collective places people no longer able to buy food those kinds of things they were given it instead and what you see is this uh, complete failure of this and people just starving and there is one of the most heart-wrenching um, descriptions of people during the period 1932 to 33 starving to death in Ukraine. And I'll read you a little extract from it here. The starvation of a human body, once it begins, always follows the same course. In the first phase, the body consumes its stores of glucose. Feelings of extreme hunger set in. In the second phase, which can last several weeks, the body begins to consume its own fat 
fats and the organism weakens drastically. In the third phase, the body devours its own proteins, cannibalizing tissues and muscles. Eventually, the skin becomes thin, the eyes distended, the legs and bellies swollen as extreme imbalances lead to the body to retain water. Small amounts of effort lead to exhaustion. Along the way, different kinds of diseases can hasten death. Scurvy, pneumonia, typhus, diphtheria and a wide range of infections and skin diseases caused directly or indirectly by food. The point about bravery is how people actually survived during this. You know, And one of the things that comes through in Applebaum's book is the attempt that she has to recover and record the voices of ordinary Ukrainians and their their sort of brave response in the you know in in the in response to this and i think one of the things is that in after ukrainian independence i think one of the things is that the the archives suddenly become open and after the collapse of the USSR, and you are suddenly able to write a different kind of history that very slowly sort of comes forward. And you can learn, you know, the the way in which people who lived during this time experience things. Um, one, One survivor remembers his mother as looking like a glass jar filled with clear spring water all her body that could be seen was see-through and filled with water like a plastic bag. Uh, another remembers his brother alive but completely swollen, his body shining as if it were made of glass. I mean, this is a really... Um, there were attempts to, to sort of... Um, there were attempts to sort of to get um, Stalin to actually intervene in this. But, of course, you know, n- it, all this just went un unheard you know unheard people made attempts to bravely take um matters into their own hands to to hide grain to store grain but what actually happened then was that troops actually came in into houses entering houses uh, confiscating all food livestock even pets that were available so there's nothing left behind um and you know and this is you know, this is what led to the death of millions of people. And it's part and parcel of how Ukraine has been treated, you know, in the past. It's also part and parcel of how uh, in Russia there's been an attempt to actually just erase the truth. And what I want to do is I just want to leave you with one of the most touching um, voices uh, from this book, Red Famine, which is a the voice of a Ukrainian poet, Oleska uh, Verechenko, who wrote in 1943, What has happened to the laughter, to the bonfires girls used to light on Midnight's Eve? Where are the Ukrainian villages and the cherry orchards by the houses? Everything has vanished in ravenous fire. Mothers are devouring their children, Madmen are selling human flesh at the markets. Really touching sort of echoes of what is happening on our TV screens today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, unbelievable, that, isn't it? Really quite extraordinary. Um, I saw a bit of an echo as well. I, I found an account. I, mean, I, I follow the New York Times, so that's how I, I get a lot of my news, and it, they're fantastic on social media. And um, you have to pay a bit to to hear what they've got to say. But it's uh, absolutely, um, it, it's just outstanding journalism. And I, they've also got a, got a huge um, archive that you can search as well. And um, I found this New York Times account of uh, the Battle of Inkerman from the 5th of November 1854, which I thought was fascinating because I'd been sitting there reading about the Russians attacking Ukraine uh, today and then I could sit back and read about the Russians attacking um, the Crimea in 1854. And this is, this, is, um, this is how it appeared in the New York Times on the 5th of November. The shells of the Russians, thrown with great precision, burst so thickly among the troops that the noise resembled the continuous discharge of cannon and the massive fragments inflicted death on every side. One of the things the Russians did when a break in the fog enabled them to see the camp of the second division was to open fire on the tents with round shot and large shell, and tent after tent was blown down, torn to pieces or sent into the air, while the men engaged in camp duties and the unhappy horses tethered up in the line were killed or mutilated. He goes on to talk about the Battle of Inkerman. Here, General Strangeways was mortally wounded, and I am told that he met his death in the following brave way. A shell came right in among the staff. It exploded in Captain Somerset's horse, ripping him open. A portion of the shell tore off the leather overalls of Captain Somerset's trousers. It then struck down Captain Gordon's horse and killed him at once, and then blew away General Strangeways' leg, so that it hung by a shred of flesh and a bit of cloth from the skin. The poor old general never moved a muscle of his face. He said merely, in a gentle voice, will anyone be kind enough to lift me off my horse? He was taken down and laid on the ground while his lifeblood ebbed fast, and at last he was carried to the rear. But the gallant old man had not sufficient strength to undergo an operation, and in two hours he had sunk to rest, leaving behind him a memory which will be held dear by every officer and man of the army. Um, so interesting parallels there, James, with the way that the wars against Russia were reported in the New York Times today and also in the past. And also in that last story is um, just a, a reminder of how bravery can help a story survive into the future. Yes, I mean, when I was thinking about bra- bravery, I was also thinking about it had echoes with the Spanish Civil War and the kind of the the sort of 35,000 or so people who actually volunteered to go over and, and fight. Or mm. if you think about the coverage of war 
and the the journalists that are actually embedded you know and are on the front line i mean i thought that i i I thought about the history of that i also think war is often is often thought of in very male terms but actually you think about some of the bravest people that you're seeing and it's not simply the people who are you know they're shouldering the weapons many of them women as well it must be must be added um but also it's 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 the mothers the daughters the grandmothers who are holding families together at the you know at these very sort of um you know horrific times and how that has a a history um i i haven't really sort of researched that but i my mind was just sort of spinning around that the story that i want to end with is it's again a sort of parallel about um about attacking uh, um russia uh, and i've got a lovely little um bio note of a finnish sniper called simo heha uh, i'm not sure whether that's how you pronounce it uh, my my Finnish pronunciation is not great, um, but this is a guy who lived between 1905 and 2002, and is a s- deadly sniper uh, during uh, what is known as the Winter War. So this is the Winter War of 1939 to 40. So it's at the beginning of the war. It's when Finland are fighting uh, the Soviets, and this this guy uh, is alleged alleged to have. Uh, have killed 505 uh, Russians during what was a 100-day period. And he's he was born in, in Finland in a, a small hamlet and he seems to have sort of taken to um, marksmanship from a fairly early age. You know, he get, went out hunting uh, with, his, with his father. And he... Um, so... And he was very a very good at judging distance, which of course you need to do when you're hunting uh, animals uh, out in in the forest. But all of these techniques and this experience that he honed as a young man comes into practice during uh, this this winter winter war. Um, and I read about some of the techniques that he used. He was known as the White Death dressed all in in white and he were was sort of invisible to all sorts of, to the the russian uh, front lines they just couldn't see him uh, and utterly deadly um later on he showed how his technique um and he's pictured sort of you know after many years later uh, firing from a covered foxhole and what's really interesting to somebody who is writing a finishing off a book on gloves at the moment is the way he used his gloves sam and he would rather than wearing them he would actually place the gloves down underneath the barrel of the weapon so that when he fired the weapon he wouldn't actually dislodge any of the snow and it was to sort of muffle the shot but there were all sorts of techniques that he used um you've got to remember that in in finland around this time uh, it's super cold so minus 20 to minus 40 um you've got to think that your if you breathed the steam from your breath would give you away and what he did was he would put snow in his mouth while he was firing so that he wasn't actually uh, seen um he'd also pour 
water into the snow in front of him so that as the so that as he fires the rifle the blast wouldn't expose his location um and he apparently he's utterly meticulous in his preparation a real obsessive about his craft so he would go out and sort of prepare the areas where he was going to to lie um if those of you interested in in firepower um this means nothing to me but he used an m28-30 uh, um and this was the weapon that he used uh to great effect but of course when you find somebody on the front line who is so deadly and so effective the russian authorities uh become extremely interested in him and actually seek him out uh and there are several attempts made to uh to kill him um and the first couple fail but then they manage to they manage to get him with an explosive bullet that basically takes away half his jaw um and and miraculously he survived and lived to into his 90s uh and and lived until um lived until i'm just finding his date till 2002 so he lived to about 96 um and but there there's an example of somebody who not only a a, a sort of marksman but also a brave you know brave person combating uh the the soviet army there we are sam mm. I was going to stop with a slightly provocative point. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so we're talking about bravery. We've been doing so, uh, having been inspired by examples of bravery from the past and, and in the modern world by examples of Ukrainian bravery. But that, of course, doesn't mean that there aren't important examples of Russians being brave. And that actually makes us think about an interesting point of bravery as as a virtue, I suppose. And if you define it as something, uh, well, I mean, the set of dispositions i suppose you could say something to overcome fear or oppose obstacles or perform difficult or dangerous actions then the idea of bravery being a virtue is in fact questionable because it doesn't actually determine of course what is to be done um let alone assure that what you're doing is actually worth doing um and that of course surely must be the more important point um, so there you are. I just wanted to end with that. And maybe uh, maybe um, if you think about bravery being a virtue that enables virtue, that helps a little more. But it does, of course, emphasise the fact that the whole point behind this and what, why the reason what we've decided to do this topic is, um, is you know, the, the, the madness of invading Ukraine. And um, also, I suppose, the difficulty of being in an army where you have orders which are clearly not very sensible. Um, stuff to think on there, James. Absolutely, Sam. And the bravery to realise, to go back on a policy and realise that it was a mistake, that is a real mark of bravery. Mm, good point. Good point. OK, guys, thank you all so much for listening to our History of Bravery. I think we're going to come back with some more uh, themes on this subject in the next few days. So do please um, stay in touch and, um, and do spread the word. Please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. If you're interested in maritime and naval history, um, that battle at Snake Island is interesting. There was a previous battle there in the 1780s. I've only recently discovered. I'm going to tell you all about that as well soon. Um, do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. 
Yeah, you should. I was, in fact, plugging it at uh, University of Plymouth Open Day this very weekend, Sam Willis. <laughs> Thank you very so much. So you all, you'll have several more uh, listeners from that. Woo-hoo. If you want to follow me, I'll be... Uh, I'm on Twitter, at James Daybell. Uh, the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and make friends with us there. We have a all-singing-all-dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see all our back catalogue and you can get signed copies of our books. And if you want to be a patron of Histories of the Unexpected, head over to patreon.com and check out our page there. Anything that you can do to help us change the way in which you think about the past would be very much appreciated. But meanwhile, um, stay safe, everyone, and look after yourselves, and hopefully see you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.